Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Irenaeus of Lyon, who was born around the year 130 AD and who died around the year 200, is the most important Greek-speaking Christian theologian of the second century. The noted early church historian J.N.D. Kelly, for example, has observed that, quote, Irenaeus's vision of the Godhead is the most complete and most explicitly Trinitarian end of quote, of all the authors of the second century, except for possibly the Latin-speaking North African uh, thinker Tertullian. Moreover, as one who had known Polycarp, the martyr bishop of Smyrna, who in turn had sat under the Apostle John, Irenaeus is a valuable witness to the teaching of the Apostolic Church. As James Payton rightly says, Irenaeus' extensive use of scripture in his massive five-volume Against Heresies indicated not only how Christian leaders then interpreted Scripture, but also what was re- accepted as Scripture in his time. Regretfully, materials for detailing his life are meager at best, but what we do know of him makes us eager to find out more about this winsome author and theologian. Irenaeus was born in the Roman province of Asia, now on the western coast of modern Turkey, around the year 130. He grew up in Smyrna, now Izmir, where he came to know Polycarp, who had been born in around 69 or possibly 70 AD, the leading elder in the church of that city, and a man widely revered for his orthodoxy and piety. According to Irenaeus, Polycarp would tell of his conversations with the Apostle John and with others who had seen the Lord. Irenaeus was mentored by Polycarp, for in a postscript to the account of Polycarp's martyrdom, Irenaeus is described as a disciple of Polycarp, The magnitude of Polycarp's influence on Irenaeus is well seen in a letter that Irenaeus wrote many years later uh, after his youth to a former friend by the name of Florinus. In it, he recalled the following. I remember events from those days more clearly than those that happened recently. What we learn in childhood adheres to the mind and grows with it, so that I can even picture the place where the blessed Polycarp sat and conversed, his comings and goings, his character, his personal appearance, his discourses to the crowds, and how he reported his discussions with John and others who had seen the Lord. He recalled their very words, what they reported about the Lord and his miracles and his teaching, things that Polycarp had heard directly from eyewitnesses of the word of life, and reported in full harmony with Scripture. I listened eagerly to those things at that time, and through God's mercy noted them, not on paper, but in my heart. By God's grace, I continually reflect on them. It was probably when he was in his teens that Irenaeus left Asia and went west to Rome. His reasons for doing so are not known. He was still in Rome, it appears, at the time of Polycarp's martyrdom in Smyrna around the year 155 AD. It was while he was in Rome that he may well have encountered two of the leading heretics or heresiarchs of the day, Marcion and Valentinus. If this was the case, these meetings would have provided material for his later refutation of their teaching, which we call Gnosticism in Against Heresies. At some later point, Irenaeus moved to to Lyon, 
the Latin name for this city in southern uh, France was Lugdunum. Then it was in the Roman province of Gaul. He possibly moved after the martyrdom of just a martyr in the mid-150s. Second century Lyon was a miniature Rome. It was a bustling cosmopolitan center of some 70,000 in Irenaeus' day, and one of the largest city centers in the Western Roman Empire. It was renowned for the manufacture of various goods and articles that were used uh, throughout the Western Roman sphere. It was also one of the key ports on the trade routes up and down the Rhone River, and was the center of the Roman road system for Gaul. Within its walls was housed an important garrison, and it functioned as the provincial capital. Also similar to Rome, it had a large Greek-speaking element in its population, and it was among this element that Christianity became firmly established by the end of the second century. For example, in the account of the martyrdom of a large number of believers from Lyon and the nearby town of Vienne in 177, it is assumed that the mother tongue of most of the Christians is Greek. So when, for instance, the deacon Sanctus of Vienne confessed his faith, the account we have of the martyr's witness makes a point of saying that it was in Latin. It was assumed, therefore, that most of these early Christians in Lyon spoke Greek. In Lyon, Irenaeus devoted himself to the twin ministry of church planting and shepherding the church. It says much for his passion for planting mature biblical churches that he learned the language of the native people, which we call Gaulish, a Celtic tongue now extinct. According to his own report, Irenaeus so concentrated on mastering this language that he later felt he had lost much of his facility with his own mother tongue of Greek. At the time of the martyrdom of the believers in Lyon and Vienne, and about 30 to 40 were killed, it appears that Irenaeus was away on a trip to Rome. If he had not been, he would doubtless have also died as a martyr. Upon his return, he found the Christian communities in these two towns decimated, with significant number of the leading Christians martyred during a two-month ordeal of persecution. The leading elder in Lyon had been Pathinus, who had been well over 90 when he died as a martyr in this persecution. Irenaeus was subsequently elected in his place. During his time as senior pastor or bishop, Irenaeus continued to have a strong passion for the evangelization of Gaul. In part, this passion was translated into written form as he penned a major apologetic work in the late 180s. His title for it was The Refutation and Overthrow of the Knowledge Falsely So-Called. He's drawing a part of that title from the closing verses of 1 Timothy. The five-volume work, though, is known more popularly as Against Heresies. Irenaeus wrote it in Greek, but the Greek version is only partially preserved. The whole text has really only come down to us in Latin. There are also some fragments extant in Syriac and Armenian. Principally, it is an attack on the two major heretical movements of the late second century, Marcionism and Gnosticism. In particular, the Gnostic system as taught by Valentinus and his disciples was targeted, namely uh, what we call Gnosticism. In attacking these heretical theologies, Irenaeus is also consciously seeking to encourage steadfastness to the truth among his orthodox readers. As he prays in Book 3 of the work, I call upon you, Lord God of Abraham and God of Isaac and of Jacob and Israel, you who are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, who through the abundance of your mercy has been pleased with us so we may know you, you who made heaven and earth and rule over all things, you who are the only true God 
above whom there is no other God. You who through our Lord Jesus Christ gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, now give to everyone who reads this writing to know that you are God alone and to be made firm in you and separate from every heretical doctrine that is godless and impious. It is known that Irenaeus wrote other works against the heresy of Gnosticism, but only against heresies has come down to us. A later work may have been written in the early 190s, and that's the demonstration of the apostolic preaching, which is really what we would call today a catechism. It was drawn up to provide an overview of key Christian doctrines for a friend. While the title was known to scholars since the Patristic era, there was actually no known copy of its existence until an Armenian translation was actually discovered in 1904 in an Armenian monastery. Irenaeus last appears in history when he addresses a respectful but firm letter of protest to Bishop to the Bishop of Rome named Victor. Victor had threatened to excommunicate various churches in Asia on account of their loyalty to the observance of Easter on the Jewish date, the 14th of Nisan, instead of the following Sunday. Victor's desire to impose the Roman custom on those who celebrated Easter on the 14th of Nisan was not well received by a number of bishops who sternly rebuked Victor. And of these bishops who wrote letters, Irenaeus was one. The debated question was not only concerning the day for Easter, but also it appears the days of fasting before. Irenaeus' letter was effective. The churches of Asia Minor celebrated Easter according to their tradition for more than a century longer and still remained in communion with Rome. The date of Irenaeus' death is not exactly known, nor the manner. The Latin translator and polemicist Jerome in the 4th century described him as an apostolic man, a bishop and martyr. But Jerome's assertion of Irenaeus' martyrdom is not at all certain. He probably died somewhere around the year 200, maybe 202. Now let's think a little bit about Gnosticism, um, which uh, Irenaeus refuted in Against Heresies. What is it? The term Gnosticism derives from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. It took many different forms comprising a wide variety of teachings and teachers, but common to nearly all of them, though, were a cluster of fundamental characteristics. First of all, basic to the Gnostic worldview was a radical cosmological dualism, the belief that the created realm and matter was inherently evil and intrinsically opposed to the realm of the spirit, which was essentially good. In the words of the apocryphal Gospel of Philip, section 22, no one will hide a great and precious object in a precious vessel. But many times has someone put countless myriads into a vessel worth a farthing. So it is with the soul, it is a precious thing and got into a despised body. Here, the writer is using the common illustration of if one has wealth and uh, precious items, you're not going to hide them into, in something that is outwardly also clearly precious. You'd put it in something that is common and looks like it was worth nothing. So it is with the soul, the author says. It's the precious thing, and the body is despised. The goal of life, then, for Gnosticism, is defined in terms of escape from the material realm. This escape, or salvation, to use theological language, comes through knowledge, not faith. Saving knowledge entailed a recognition of the supposedly divine element within one's being, which constituted the real self. The realization that latent within one's being is a divine spark. Most Gnostics believed that somehow 
Portions of God had got broken off from God and lodged within the human bodies, and these were their divine souls. Salvation is therefore defined in terms of self-enlightenment, not deliverance from sin and sin's penalty. It's very interesting to note that this line of thinking is not too dissimilar from that of some contemporary New Age devotees, uh, like men like uh, Eckhart Tolle. For most Gnostics, though not all, this work of enlightenment is the work of Jesus. But the Gnostic Jesus is quite a different person from the incarnate Son of God of the New Testament. Christ's incarnation, his death and resurrection are all downplayed, even rejected, and the key emphasis is placed on Jesus as a teacher. Thus, in the Gnostic document, which we call the Acts of John, section 93, the Apostle John is supposedly recalling that sometimes when he touched Christ, quote, I met with a solid and material body, and other times when I felt him, the substance was immaterial as if it did not exist at all, end of quote. The Gnostic teacher Ptolemaeus, a disciple of Valentinus, maintained, quote, Christ passed through Mary as water passes through a pipe, and that during his time on earth, Christ did not enter into an intimate relationship with the material realm, for, quote, matter is not capable of being saved, end of quote. Not surprisingly, Ptolemaeus also propounded the view that Christ never really suffered. As he said, it is impossible that he should have suffered since he was unconquerable and invisible. Finally, Gnostics were greatly concerned with freedom. There was, for instance, a stress upon freedom from biblical morality, which resulted either in strict asceticism, most Gnostics leaned in this direction, or libertine indulgence. In the Acts of Thomas, a document that some Gnostics sought to pass off as scripture, marriage is described as, quote, filthy intercourse, which, when it is abandoned, makes one a holy temple, pure and free from afflictions and pains, both manifest and hidden. Saturninus of Antioch, a Syrian Gnostic who flourished in the second century, plainly declared, marriage and procreation are of Satan. It's also noteworthy that Gnostics generally had no qualms about avoiding martyrdom for their beliefs. Since Christ never really suffered in the flesh and died, Gnostics reasoned it was unlikely that he would work through the flesh now. And so why should they suffer and die? Ignatius of Antioch, in battling various Gnostics in his writings around the year 110, will allude to this fact by asking the, the question about the Gnostics' lack of martyrs. And if, uh, Christ didn't, if Christ didn't suffer in the flesh, why was he suffering? But as he emphasized, the way Christ went is the way we go. Christ suffered, really suffered. And so Christians are called upon at times to suffer for their faith. The roots of this heresy stretch back to the very period in which the New Testament scriptures are being written. Before the ink on these inerrant texts was dry, Gnosticism was assailing the church. For instance, a little doubt that the opponents of sound doctrine squarely refuted by Paul in the pastoral epistles and by John in 1 and 2 John were men and women of this perspective. For more than a century and a half, the church found herself waging a life and death struggle with this heretical worldview. And central in this struggle was the leading elder in the church at Lyon, during the final quarter of the second century, Irenaeus. And next week, we shall see how Irenaeus responded to this heresy. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, 
biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.